Welcome to Four City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And on this episode, we're going to talk about the South Park fire in Charlotte, partisan school boards, and a case of two journalists arrested in Asheville. Yeah, well, let's jump right into it. And I guess we want to start with the fire. Yeah, so some disturbing reporting out of Charlotte that this fire just didn't come out of nowhere, that there were some red flags before it happened. Yeah, so for those, obviously, you know, we this is Port City. Uh, we do statewide coverage now. But uh, for those not aware, there was a very, very large five-alarm fire in Charlotte um, about two two months ago or so, two or three months, um, that took the lives of two uh, in, two workers that were at the uh, who were on site. There was a dramatic uh, crane rescue. There was a worker about 250 feet in the air, I think, um, which was very difficult to to obviously get someone from a burning crane. Um, and then the two employees of a window install company, um, unfortunately and very sadly, uh, died in that fire. So it was a big, big news event in Charlotte, obviously. There's not that many five-alarm fires, especially at a massive apartment complex going up. So we've done some uh, coverage of this in the past at WBTV when I was still there. Um, I was actually working the day of the fire, and to say it was chaotic is an understatement. Uh, but there were a lot of remaining questions. An investigative reporter at WBTV, David Hodges, has done some good reporting on this, looking into, um, you know, how this happened. I mean, obviously, not how the fire started, although that is a question that uh, I believe has been answered. I, I believe it was spray insulation got sprayed onto a generator. Um, which sparked the fire. But, you know, there should be safety measures in place for fires, especially at construction sites um, that are predominantly, at least the first few floors are often made of wood. You have plywood flooring all the way up. I don't know if this was a steel frame structure past the, uh, past the third floor or not, or possibly all the way up. Uh, but there's still a lot of wood. You got, you know, your beams with on, within the studs. You got uh, Joyce, you got all sorts of wood and flammable materials, which is why this thing went up so fast and so devastatingly. Um, so David Hodges has been looking into what happened, and it turns out, you know, there's there are fire codes in North Carolina and across the country um, to prevent accidents like this from happening, um, because it does appear that it was, you know, just a tragic accident. Um, fire codes are, you know, plans that are put into place, um, that you file with the fire marshal and you get insurance. Uh, I don't know the very specifics of what fire plans are required. Um, but there's, there's a plan known as the pre-fire plan, which is required by fire code to be created by builders in consultation with the fire department. And it looks like, you know, Charlotte Fire Department said the construction site did not file a pre-fire plan. And this was on July 6th that this story was fired. The reason why there's some red flags is obviously that's problematic if you didn't fire, file that pre-fire fire plan. Uh, and it didn't stop construction. So Hodges 
dug even deeper into the fire department's involvement in reviewing and approving safety plans. Um, and again, it was initially uncovered that they didn't actually file one of these things. So yeah, the disturbing part here seems to be twofold. One is that this developer didn't meet this requirement, didn't have this um, this fire plan, but that Charlotte Fire in general doesn't appear to be, you know, um, archiving these or monitoring them. It's just, it's on paper, but it doesn't seem to be actually happening. And then the second problem seems to be specifically with this development is that there were, uh, I believe what are called fire holds, where there are issues um, with the ongoing construction that the fire marshal's office can, can place on a the, that the fire marshal can place on a building, but that that didn't that didn't stop construction. It just continued to pace. So, possibly multiple fronts that there was failure here. Yeah, I mean, fire holds are, as you said, you know, shortcomings with the plans for fire alarms and sprinkler systems. And this construction was fairly far along. It wasn't in the completed phase. Um, but for me you know, not having fire suppression systems in place for the construction. Obviously, that takes time to actually get the the plumbing installed. And I don't know what level they were at of installing, you know, the residential portions of fire sprinkler systems. Um, but if the sprinklers were not in place and there was a fire hold placed on the building, uh, the building plans and they kept building it, that is, um, you know, very concerning to say the least i do not know the fire code and the actual requirements so i won't say um that it was you know anything illegal but it does seem to you know it definitely raises those red flags as to why these uh why the plans didn't include this um there was also something called a standpipe that uh did not appear to be in place um which i guess would have helped um you know, with getting water to suppress the fire um, and these construction sites. And I mean, we've seen it all over Wilmington. Fortunately, I don't know of any massive fires like this, but, you know, fires do happen at residential complexes. The last big one I can think of was the uh, apartment building in Carolina Beach, um, that even when there are sprinkler systems installed, these, you know, massive fires can't necessarily be put out uh, without the, the fire department. Um, but there are supposed to be these plans in place. Uh, Charlotte Fire Plan reviewers reveal that several fire holds were applied to the construction site, um, which, again, just very problematic. And the fact that um, there was a direct quote in an email from the Charlotte Fire Department uh, saying the fire chief or fire code official has not approved pre-fire plans for any buildings that is again problematic um yeah <laughs> i mean there's a another quote here that says the fire code official has not approved pre-fire plans because none have been presented for approval um again you know who's holding these people accountable is the big question um you know hindsight you can't you know, we can't prove that, you know, had these plans been in place, that the fire would have been suppressed, that people's lives wouldn't have been lost. But it definitely begs that question as to, we've talked about this so many times, why have rules on the books if they're not being enforced? 
Right. And I've, you know, I've been a part of a couple of buildings that went up when I worked in my restaurant career, you know, either buildings that had overhauls or, or new facilities that were built and contractors and owners will always complain about all the onerous hoops they have to jump through. And there are probably some, uh, that you're like, all right, that's just ridiculous. Like it's silly. It's the wrong kind of door handle, that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. there are definitely some good rules, but those rules only work if, like you said, if someone is, is holding them accountable and it's like, yeah, if nothing bad happens and maybe no one looks at it, it's very unfortunate that it, it took, you know, a, a tragic loss of life for to, to put a spotlight on this, but now it's there. So I, I'm very curious to follow the story and see where it goes from here. And if there's any meaningful change, if they say, okay, I guess we really do have to crack down on this and actually do our job and inspect this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the final final quote I want to give here from this from this story was another email sent to David Hodges uh, said Charlotte is currently following the NC Fire Code. These are things that the Code Revision Committee is currently looking into, and how these matters conform with the latest version of the uh, NFPA, which is that National Fire Plan um, Act, which. I is, again, is concerning that they have to look into whether or not these are actually following fire code, which tells me, you know, this is another instance of reactive instead of proactive measures. Um, and in this case, that could potentially save lives. Yeah. So I want to I want to pivot now and talk about a very different issue um, that we were talking about off mics, and that is the the kind of expanded number of partisan school boards. Yeah, I mean, where to where to start with this? I guess um, for those who who don't know, in North Carolina, uh, school boards obviously they're elected, uh, but by large, for you know years and years, and I actually think in the seventies, sixties, or seventies, there was a law passed that required school boards to be nonpartisan. However. You know, exemptions can be granted based off what's known as a local act, which is when, uh, you know, state laws apply specifically to just specific counties or cities, things of that nature. And these things don't require the governor's approval to pass these into law. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about Wilmington's partisan, Wilmington's partisan school board here. I mean, we've seen a lot of culture war come to the schools. Yeah, and I mean, I think this cuts both ways. I mean, I've certainly heard anecdotally uh, from my time in Wilmington when I first moved down here around 2003, 2004, that some conservatives were happy that it was a partisan school board here in New Hanover County because they were committed to what was called um, neighborhood schools, which a lot of people just accept as a euphemism for segregation and right. they wanted to know whether or not someone was running as a democrat because they there was a push by the democratic party to desegregate the the school district ultimately the courts had to step in because the, the new Hanover county was so segregated actually it was in violation of federal law and i think now they're probably partisans on both sides that want to know who the who is running on which party because there's going to be sort of a baseline set of assumptions about that 
person because over the last four years, school boards have become really case on like ground zero for culture war fights um, and battles over everything from masking to reopening to vaccines to book banning to transgender athlete policy. And I think it's so polarized that people kind of assume that if you're running as a Democrat, you're on one side of this issue. And if you're running as a Republican, you're on the other side of this issue. And by and large, I think people would be right. Um, what's interesting is that that wasn't always the case, and it's not the case everywhere. Um, and I'd say some really good reporting from earlier this year from Andos Helms at WFAE, who pointed out that, and this is changing rapidly, but at the time, it was 42 of the 115 school boards, which includes some city school boards and I believe some tribal school boards, um, but 42 out of 115, so less than half, are partisan. And, but that number is growing. Interestingly, um, I think there are five cities in North Carolina that have primaries and run candidates based on political affiliation out of 500 towns, villages, and cities. Okay. And so two things are happening here. One is that everything is getting more partisan and politicized. So, for example, if you look at the race for Wilmington City Council this year, uh, filing season just opened last week, but even before that, the, uh, the Democratic Party held basically uh, a candidates forum with four Democratic candidates, including one incumbent, who were all explicitly running under the aegis of the Democratic Party and as Democrats. And that hasn't always been the case in the past. It's certainly the case now. I don't think you could get away with running um, as, a, as a nonpartisan you know, candidate, just saying like as an unaffiliated candidate. So, so that's happening. But at the same time, you know, there are increasing pressures to sort of be to be partisan on on school boards i think it's going to be a little hard many of the partisan things and you and i've talked about this many times you know many of the partisan issues that people squabble about going into a city council race end up not being things that are in their jurisdiction you know people argue about whether or not they're going to be a sanctuary city or you know, allow red flags. But a lot of these things get trumped by, you know, county politics or state politics or federal politics. You know, we've had um, city council candidates who have talked about, you know, the border and, you know, sort of federal economic policies. And it's like, you really have to stick to what's in your jurisdiction. School boards, I will say, they are fighting about things that they do have direct jurisdiction over. Mm -hmm. So... It's interesting that the the number is increasing, and I I know some people would argue that, you know, this is a, this is a bad thing. Is that the school boards should just be in charge of, you know, providing the best possible education? But again, I I do think people on both sides of the political spectrum kind of want to know where their candidates stand. Yeah, definitely, and you know the, uh, I think we saw it firsthand in Wilmington with the uh, Republicans running for school board, uh, what was that, last year, yep, um, you know, sweeping the school board elections, which was, uh, it was honestly surprising to me. It wasn't um, out of the realm of possibility, but I, I didn't expect it to be a full sweep. I expected maybe three out of the four, um, you know, I didn't expect 100%. But that is one of the things, and I've talked to Democrats, I believe, uh, state uh, representative uh, Deb Butler has said this is Republicans are very good in these times as running as a slate and 
even if you know some people aren't as hung up on um you know let's say book fanning or uh transgender uh transgender students uh in sports um running as a slate kind of puts you in that uh that same realm as your fellow candidates whether you're more or less uh opposed to it and it just goes to show that you know as as culture wars continue across the country um it, it is increasingly seeing children and schools come into really into ground zero for a lot of these arguments that uh as you mentioned a lot of times um aren't necessarily uh local politics related but really just talking points and uh pretty incendiary topics of discussion um that have really brought out i mean we've seen proud boys showing up at school board meetings uh opposing uh all sorts of things and you know we've mentioned this a lot in the past really for me and i have been covering school boards for a while this really all got started due to COVID 19 when people were you know speaking out against the mask mandates obviously those have gone away now um but they realize they get a lot of attention. Um, they can, you know, obviously they get a lot more attention than, let's say, a city council or a school board uh, or a county commissioner meeting. Honestly, um, I haven't seen to that same extent, um, you know, people showing up at county commission and city council uh, to talk about these issues. There are, you know, often one or two people that. Uh, you know, we'll sign up to speak, but it's not nearly as frequent in my experience. Yeah. And I can say because of the way regulations under COVID rolled out, you had both President Trump, a Republican, and Governor Cooper, a Democrat, both kind of, with a few exceptions, as the pandemic unfolded, especially after vaccines became available, really delegated authority to the to the local units, usually at the county level. So whether or not a school reopened, whether or not there was a mask mandate, really came down to county boards of health and county uh, school boards. And if you told me before the pandemic that there would be a packed house at a at a health department meeting, I, I would say that that's ludicrous. You, you wouldn't expect yeah. to see like eight news vans parked in front of it, but that's what happened because <laughs> the health board was deciding whether or not we're going to have a mask mandate. And then, of course, you saw the Proud Boys there and pro-mask advocates and anti-mask advocates. And I, I have to imagine that some of this top-down delegation, um, and I would even say abdication of leadership, had to do with the fact that these things were freaking unpopular. A lot of pandemic measures were like an ounce of pain now to spare a pound of pain later, but it was like no one wanted to wear masks indefinitely. No one wanted to be under curfew or lockdown. Um, even people who were, you know, understood that these were scientifically backed measures that were going to save lives, it still wasn't popular. So I, that's how we ended up, I, in my understanding, is sort of my analysis of this is that that's how we ended up with local school boards making these decisions instead of the state or even the U.S. Department of Education. So that's where people started getting really invested in their local government. So come for the mask mandate, stay for the culture wars was kind of what happened. At the same time, the Republican Party made an explicit open effort to reinvest in local elections. So even before the 2020 election uh, and Trump's defeat, 
I think the Republican Party was already considering a local ground game. And after Trump lost to President Biden, we saw Republican parties, state parties sort of, you know, getting their saying like directly saying like, let's send an operative to these counties, especially in purple states where we can maybe move the needle a little bit and get people on boards of education, get them on election boards where possible, get them on health boards. And we saw that in the school board election here where the candidates, like you said, they ran on a slate of four candidates that allowed, you know, sort of moderate centrist and extreme right-wing people to all sort of ride the same boat to victory. And I, like you, I was surprised. I thought we might see two or three of those candidates win because they did have, they, they were sort of very effectively campaigning, but I didn't think it would be an absolute landslide, but it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of, um, kind of where we can leave that. I, I do know that there have been several bills filed this general assembly session that have passed, uh, giving these partisan school boards, um, you know, more, more authority to run as, uh, run as a party and i think at the end of the day people know where their candidates stand even if it's not a partisan election um so i'm not positive on what the difference will be except for straight ticket voters who you know previously might not have been informed they see the republican the r next to someone's name and they fill that bubble in um without necessarily knowing what that candidate stands for. Um, and I think that's the biggest implication for this because those in the know who already follow um, what their candidates are running on, uh, they know what they like and what they don't like. Yeah, I'm just saying, there's always the wild card though. You know, Charlie Rivenbark was a Democrat who became a Republican. Friend of the show, Julia Olson Bozeman was a Democrat who became a Republican. Trisha Cotham yes. became a Republican, so... You can be, I think you could be 95% sure where someone stands, but always put that little asterisk on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's where that is. I think we're going to see more of that in the coming years. Um, but time for a quick break. Time for a quick break. And we come back, we're going to talk about these Asheville journalists. Welcome back to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And before we go, we wanted to talk about two Asheville journalists um, and a trial about their right to report on a story. And this dates back to Christmas of 2021. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, and this has been an ongoing uh an ongoing story really that hasn't gotten as much attention or scrutiny um, as, you know, I personally think it should have um, strictly because of the location of Asheville. Uh, it is, most people know where Asheville is, but it's tucked away. Um, and it's pretty much known as a, probably the bastion of uh, liberal views and politics in North Carolina, um, which is, you know, it, it's saying a lot, but it's the, uh, it has changed. I used to live there, uh, in 2009, 2010, that era, it was still very, um, 
pretty under the radar, wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. Um, and really a uh, kind of, and I don't mean this derogatory, but it was, and it still is, a little bit of a hippie uh, vibe for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Development has definitely increased that. You now start seeing bumper stickers that say, welcome to Asheville, you're too late. Um, mm -hmm. But there is definitely, um, you know, a lot of commentators have pointed at the sort of disconnect between a more liberal-leaning city council and a more traditional conservative police department. So when it comes to issues of public safety, especially Asheville's growing homelessness crisis, uh, there's been some friction there. And that's kind of the backdrop of this story where um, two reporters for the Asheville Blade, uh, Veronica Colt, uh, sorry, Veronica, Veronica Coit and Matilda Bliss were arrested on Christmas of 2021. And I want to just go ahead and point out that the Asheville Blade is definitely a left-leaning publication. They're not, a, they are partisan. They're not a neutral uh, down the middle type outlet, but they're still journalists. Um, and they were recording. And some of the things that, that troubled me about this arrest was one that uh, body cam footage that was released showed officers explicitly saying that since these two were recording or rather videotaping, that they should be arrested first. Um, and this was during a police crackdown on a, on a homeless encampment. And the other is that in a warrant for one of the reporters, I believe, she was specifically targeted for having uh, left-wing extremist beliefs. And there didn't seem to be two things. One, that you can't arrest someone for their political beliefs or you go down a very dark path. Uh, and two, there didn't seem to be a lot of evidence to actually back that up. Yeah, definitely problematic for the, uh, for the rights of journalists. And I understand that we're not always popular. That's uh, that's just part of our job. I think we've all accepted that uh, that part of it, and we just got to live with it. It's the same with, uh, and I'm not saying we have the same jobs in any stretch, but um, you know, police officers are also seen as unpopular by, um, you know, often half of the half of the population. Um, it's a Again, it's just a product of the job. Anytime you're in an enforcement role, holding people accountable, whether that's, you know, as the fifth estate in journalism or, you know, law enforcement, uh, people don't like being held accountable often when they're doing things uh, that they probably shouldn't be doing. So that's understandable. But what's not understandable to me is how and why these reporters... Um, who were in a city park recording, as you said, a, a crackdown on a homeless encampment on Christmas night. Um, police were removing items and, uh, you know, un unhoused population from the park. You know, I can, I can certainly understand. We've seen it in Wilmington. We've seen it in New Hanover County and pretty much all over the state that, um, you know, these unsheltered populations and really across the country um you know are are seen as problematic um for people on both the left and the right um we saw it in front of the the parking deck and library in wilmington um we had a lot of people coming to city council meetings and asking to crack down on that and i believe the new hanover county commissioners and the sheriff's office eventually did get some additional leeway to try and remove people from there um, and last time I was in front of the library there, uh, it seemed the, the population had been moved and 
We've talked about the idea of squeezing water, um, which we've seen when we've talked about it in the past, we're pretty much talking about crimes um, and gangs. You know, uh, District Attorney Ben David has often referred to, you know, cracking down in one area uh, on gangs as squeezing water, that you just move these people somewhere else. Um, and I think that's the the situation with homelessness. Uh, people do see them as a, a, a blight on the community. And at the end of the day, we are talking about human beings um, who are obviously facing a lot of struggles, many of them, and this is backed by uh, you know, actual surveys of these populations. Many of them do struggle with mental health, uh, you know, challenges. Um, so there's there's definitely a lot of attention on homelessness and how people are cracking down on it, specifically in cities like Asheville, um, which has become increasingly gentrified. Uh, you look at the developments downtown. You're seeing a lot of fancy hotels, uh, fancy breweries. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of Wicked Weed, which is a cool little place, but it's definitely not the same hole-in-the-wall vibe that, let's say, the Asheville Music Hall in downtown or the Orange Peel um, have that kind of unique, funky vibe, whereas some of these hotels are now really becoming uh, corporate chains with... Um, you know, just not as unique as Asheville used to be. So with that gentrification and with that influx of money coming in, uh, homelessness continues to uh, draw criticism from from residents. And basically what these reporters were doing, like you mentioned, were just covering the removal of these people. They were told by police to get out of the park, that it was closed to the public. And... These reporters did not disperse, so they were arrested on trespassing charges. It's a public park. Uh, if the park is closed after hours, uh, I can see, you know, that is posted. Uh, but again, as a journalist, recording police activity is a protected right under the First Amendment. Um, yeah, and, you and know, some of the some of that's some of the issues that came up during this during this trial. Um, is is one the the judge the judge was discussing the idea that there were many people filming besides these two journalists for the Asheville Blade, um, which he argued, you know, sort of diluted the need for those two specific journalists um, to be filming. And I've never heard that argument before because certainly in a public setting, like during a protest, you wouldn't, you know, for example, during the um, during the the protests here in downtown Wilmington after the murder of George Floyd, there were reporters from about a half dozen at least different outlets, and mm -hmm. the crowd was told to disperse. And journalists are allowed under the First Amendment to stay and film. They get sort of a carve-out, where as long as they're not, you know, impeding the actions of police or endangering anyone, they get to stay and document it. Mm -hmm. um, and case history has, has kind of supported that. But you certainly... What you you might say that there's a risk to everyone, so everyone has to leave and and remove all the journalists. But it would be weird if the sheriff's office, for example, were to like arrest five of the six journalists and say, "All right, one can stay and document." That that would be very odd. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that they argued, the judge argued that the um, 
the two Asheville Blade reporters could have done their job without trespassing into the park, basically filming from outside of it. Um, and that's another interesting one where they're basically like, a judge is basically armchair quarterbacking how the press could have done their job. I certainly don't think you get the same story from 100 yards away as you get from right in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this, uh, we did see, uh, you know, when I wasn't at WBCT at that time at the protest, we were both at Port City Daily. Um, you know, we were down there uh, along with uh, former reporter Mark Darrow uh, taking pictures, documenting it. Uh, I was pretty much left alone and left my own devices, uh, mainly because, you know, Mark and I did not look like journalists at the time. Um Whereas I do know that uh, WECT reporters were told to, uh, you know, by chief, uh, chief of police Donnie Williams to go stand in one certain area. And then the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office came through and demanded that people leave, that the reporters, you know, vacate where they were told they could stand, which I believe was on the steps of City Hall. Um, it just comes down to this general... Uh, general division between law enforcement and reporters in general and journalists in general. Again, uh, people are very critical of what police are doing as more attention is brought forward as uh, cell phone videos continue to make a, uh, you know, to, to shed a light on this. And again, I, I do understand the reason why police officers wouldn't want you there, but it does come down to that First Amendment right. Um, and I believe that this ruling in particular, uh, while I can understand, you know, the, the trespassing issue and, you know, the argument that this job could have been done from elsewhere, I don't think it's law enforcement's right to tell journalist where they can stand what they can record unless it's an active crime scene that you are risking uh you know life and limb i do remember i was at uh city hall when there was a uh suspicious package and oh, yeah. i was filming <laughs> i was filming from across the street and the police came up to me and he was very kind he was a wilmington police officer and he was like listen man i'm not going to tell you where to go but if i were you i would not be standing where you are and when a cop tells me that i'm gonna go ahead and listen to him because i don't want to get blown up um so you know i think that was the proper way to do it to be kind and just uh reason with people because you know journalists are people and police are people uh there's got to be a way for everyone to get along while still doing their jobs and not impeding and i think that does take compromise on both sides uh it's not just police officers you know responsibility uh, you know, respect flows both ways. Yeah. The last, the last thing I want to say is that that, that issue actually came up because one of the, one of the journalists claims that, uh, she was misgendered and there's evidence to back this up. So, cause there was body, there was body cam footage, um, that she was, she's a trans woman and she was repeatedly misgendered. Um, and that she was left in a jail transport vehicle for way too long, about three hours. The Asheville jail is not three hours away. And uh, the judge actually called these out, you know, um, yeah. but he didn't buy the argument that this was retaliation by the department. He called them independent mistakes. And I think one of the issues we deal with in that friction between journalists and police officers is that officers, whether they're sheriff's deputies or police officers, have a lot of discretion. 
you know, if they're not, you know, if it's in the heat of the moment and say there is, say there is a protest or a riot or a situation where there's a suspicious package, you know, officers aren't calling up the chain of the command to the chief of police or city council or county commissioners or the sheriff to ask, hey, how should I interpret the First Amendment? They're just making right. a decision. And sometimes that decision, you know, is like, you know what? You're the press. I don't have to like you, but you're just doing your job. I've had this interaction with cops many times. They're kind of gruff, mm-hmm. but they're like, do your job. Just please stay out of my way. Um, and sometimes they are more overtly hostile. And you and I both have situations where, you know, officers and deputies have, have tried to keep us from filming. And <laughs> so it, it, it sometimes it is hard to pet it down on a systemic problem. Sometimes it's just people acting, being good actors or bad actors. So I'll, I'll leave my part of it there. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it. And again, um, there is, as as we mentioned, there's more people with cell phones and more people calling themselves journalists these days. Um, I am not going to gatekeep what journalism is and isn't. Um, but I will say that with more people, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, service animals and emotional support animals. As more people use these terms to, um, you know, gain leniency to have their pets in apartments, things like that, uh, when they're not actually certified or if they're not actually working for a publication, yes, you can have a Substack, you can have a blog, um, but it does dilute what the terms actually mean. Um, and I think that's also giving rise to some of the criticism, uh, not to say that these, these journalists do work for a paper. And again, I, I won't gatekeep what a journalist is, but, uh, with many more people claiming, you know, at these protests, even back in, uh, you know, after the murder of George, George Floyd, um, a lot of people recording just said, oh, we're journalists. Um, it, it it dilutes the meaning of it to a degree. Um, and I think that's also posing some of the problems because there could be rebel rousers included in this and not to say that all journalists are neutral or, you know, aren't starting problems. Um, but by and large, the professional journalists who are working for, uh, professional outlets, um, you know, play by certain rules, whereas other people don't. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this is also a human enterprise. One of the problems is that if you're a journalist and you've been working in an area for a while, you'll probably know some of the law force, law enforcement agents. You know, you will know these people. And not that you should have to have a relationship to be treated appropriately. It's just that's how it works out. You know, they yeah. will know that you're more likely to be fair and even handed with what you do with what you record than someone who is explicitly an activist but is calling themselves a journalist and that came up in this case with the Asheville Blade where WPD basically accused these folks of being activists Asheville PD Asheville uh, yeah sorry the Asheville PD accused um these journalists of being activists um in a way that sort of said like this is you know mutually incompatible you can't be an activist and a journalist and that's a debate for a whole other time but I didn't yeah. think <laughs> in in my experience working for an established media outlet will will probably result in a little bit more leeway and respect from law enforcement. I'm not saying that you should have to be in a legacy media outlet to get respect from the cops. That's just real politics. That's just how it works on the ground. 
that's how it works. You have more experience with them. They know you and they might not like you, but they know you're, you know, credentialed press. So I think that's a good place to leave that. Uh, I do believe this case is going to be appealed to the Court of Appeals. We're, we're going to have to wait and see where that lands. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for now, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, we'll see you then.